New Testament lesson this morning is found in Ephesians 6, arrived in verses 5 through 9. Listen carefully to God's Word. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word this morning, we ask for help, and especially on a passage like this, where we wonder what its relevance is for us today. Guide us in the way of understanding. It's only in your light that we can see light. And so speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Especially for those visiting, uh, this passage requires some explanation. Why in the world on VBS Sunday are we talking about slavery? Why was that chosen? And so this deserves some qualification. We are in the book of Ephesians, and we've simply arrived here where we at Christ Church, work through passage by passage, and now at the end of the household code that Paul gives, starting in Ephesians 5, working into Ephesians 6, we've arrived at this strange passage about slaves and masters. There are some important qualifications, too, in particular, to consider as you hear this, and we need to start here because this passage can be offensive for modern ears, and people are puzzled. What exactly is being said? The first qualification is this, is that the system of slavery from the first century is not exactly the same system of slavery that we knew here in the United States from the 1600s through the 1800s. That is what we call chattel slavery. You'll note in the ESV that next to the word slaves, it may even be translated bondservants in your Bible, but that is an alternate translation that is perhaps more helpful. But do you know exactly what a bondservant is? No, nobody does, and so it's not particularly helpful. But the translators are attempting to point out to us that when we're talking about this concept of slavery in the first century world, it's different from the context that we know it as. And that the system of bond servants in the first century Greco-Roman world was quite different. Uh, that bond servants were the economic engine. They were the workforce Millions upon millions of people in the first century were known as bondservants. And so the system was the real undergirding, the foundation of Greco-Roman society. It's not necessarily a good system. Paul is not commending it to us, but he's simply addressing it where it is in the society because he understood that uh, this was key, this being the economic and social engine. And slaves or bondservants could be many different types of positions in society. They could do domestic labor in the home, but slaves, bondservants were also esteemed positions like doctors and architects. They often did exalted public works. And some people would even freely give themselves into slavery in order to get ahead. They would enslave themselves in the hopes of future liberation 
where they could buy back their freedom. And so slavery is quite complicated. And when we consider its application and its value for today, perhaps the closest approximation we can come to is the employer and employee relationship between what Paul addresses as master and slave. And so that is the primary lens that we'll use to deal with this today. The second qualification, though, is closer related to this. We see here, when we arrive at the, in, in chapter 6, in verses 5 through 9, that the gospel leaves absolutely nothing in life untouched. This is what is so critical for us to see. The book begins in chapter 1 saying that God sends Jesus Christ into the world to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth. That God is now making all things right after sinful humanity rebels and turns against Him. God sends Jesus into the world to atone for that sin and pollution and remove it. And that He will reign over the world and one day He'll make everything right where that stain and that sin is removed. And then the book progressively begins to explain how God is now reconciling all things in heaven and on earth. He reconciles sinners to Himself, forgiving our sins in chapter 2 in the first part. Second half of chapter 2 is He reconciles sinners to one another. Jew and Gentile who hated one another, they are now one family and have access to one God through the Spirit. And then He begins to work about how sin is removed from the heart in chapters four, in chapter 3 and 4. And then chapter 5, we find the reconciliation of communities and families, husbands and wives, children and parents. And now we arrive at this critical social and economic relationship in life. And friends, when we come to Christianity and we speak of the gospel, this is not just simply a private religious experience that warms our heart and gives us some chicken noodle soup for the soul. Christianity is far more profound than that. It addresses every aspect of life in God's created world. It leaves nothing accepted. And so Paul here is addressing the social and economic relationships that those in the church find themselves engaged in and that the gospel seeks to reform those and change those according to God's desire and design. And God's Word is a Word that comes from the outside. And the fundamental stance for the Christian is not to be a master over what is said in the Bible, but to seek to be mastered by it. To submit ourselves to this outside Word that comes from God and to seek to conform ourselves to it. And so with those two qualifications, it's in that vein that we see two things from our passage this morning. Two ways that the gospel is relevant to these social and economic relationships that all of us are engaged in. Every one of us are engaged in social and economic relationships, and what does the gospel have to say about those? First thing is this, is that the gospel assumes equality amongst the great and the small, the powerful and the powerless. Chapter 6, verse 5 begins with the address to slaves or bondservants. They are then given a command, but it's important to oppress upon you, and we've gone over this in the past weeks, that household codes were a normal part of the discussion in Greco-Roman society. Philosophers often wrote these as part of their ethics, 
And so it was normal for these discussions to be taking place. And Paul, at the close of his letter, after he is talking about the work of the gospel in the world, attaches a household code about how the Christian household was to operate and work. The profound difference between this Christian household code and the household codes of the first century world is that in the first century, only the head of the household was addressed, the father. And he was instructed how he was to treat his wife or wives, how he was to treat his children, and how he was to treat his slaves. And he was instructed about how he was to conduct that relationship and what authority and rights he had over them. Hopefully you can begin to already see the difference. A revolutionary difference that takes place in the Christian household code. Slaves and children and fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, they are all addressed here. Why? Because they stand on equal ground. Created in the image of God, all are welcomed into the Christian family, into the church, because of what Christ does for us. Paul returns to this in verse 9 where he says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. In other words, both slaves and masters have one common master. And because of that, there's no partiality that our Lord Jesus is the one Lord of all. This is despite race, this is despite class, this is despite our social position or our economic function inside of society, that there is an equality inside of the Christian church. We stand on equal and level ground with one another. It's very similar to what Paul says back in chapter 2. You remember as he works through the issue of Jew and Gentile, listen to these words again, from verse 16. He's speaking of why Christ came into the world, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And it is because of this reconciliation that's taken place between sinners and God And because we all share in this sinful sinful activity, but now are reconciled to God and given peace with Him through Jesus, that we stand on this level and equal ground. And so the gospel does remove all distinctions that we would choose to make based on race and class. All systems of segregation that we can erect based on race and class. All systems that subordinate others as subhuman. This simple household code blows up all of those systems that human beings are good at constructing. What it doesn't do is it doesn't destroy all hierarchy. It doesn't destroy social order. And we'll return to that a bit later. But in the Presbyterian church, in the history of our tradition, we have a speckled history. There have been some that have been extraordinary in espousing the values of the equality of human beings reconciled to God through Jesus. And there have been others who have not held up those values. One of our champions is a man named John uh, Girardo. Sorry, I struggled to pronounce it. I didn't ever take French. I did some Spanish poorly. 
Gerardo was the, he was the son of a French Huguenot parent and a Scotch-Irish parent, so there's something special going on there. He was born in 1825, James Island, South Carolina, just north of Charleston. He was a privileged son. He was educated in the, southern, in the South's best schools. He went to Columbia Theological Seminary in Columbia, South Carolina, and then he returned to Charleston, which was known as the Holy City. But he didn't return in the way that anyone expected him to. He went to the colored church. He was the white pastor of the African-American church there in Charleston. As he began to preach, there was an enormous response to his labors and efforts. Zion Presbyterian Church became the largest church in the city of Charleston in the mid-1800s. If you've ever been to Charleston, they built a mammoth sanctuary on the corner of Meeting Street and Calhoun. It's no longer there. His labors were phenomenally successful, and you can imagine the opposition to those. After the Civil War, he was still ministering there in Charleston, and he ordained the first African-American pastors in the Southern Presbyterian Church. He was opposed on many fronts. And then in 1874, he was the sole voice in the Southern Presbyterian Church that opposed segregated congregations. He was the one. He pastored a church with at least 500 African-American members and 200 white members. He ordained the first African-American Presbyterian pastors in in the southern part of the United States. He understood the claims of the gospel about reconciling human beings to one another. He understood the claim of the gospel that there's no distinction by race or class between people who profess faith in Christ, that he couldn't make that. And friends, what he was willing to do was then consider these things, reform the world in which he lived, and count the cost and pay the cost. That's the beautiful part of his legacy. He's one amongst many who we can class as heroes. But he understood that the gospel creates an equality among us, an equality between the small and the great, the powerful and the powerless, as we call upon the same Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing that we learn here, though, in Ephesians 6, is that the gospel also inspires a new ethic among us. That is that the gospel doesn't simply do something socially and horizontally, but it does something on the interior about the way that we work. Begin reading in verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And then importantly in verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. And then pick up in verse 9, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. And what is so remarkable here is that Paul offers us a transformed vision of work no matter where we find ourselves in the hierarchy. That slaves are called not to focus upon their rights. What they are called to focus upon is their work. 
to bring their work in front of God, no matter how menial or exalted that work may have been for these bondservants in the first century, but to offer that work to God, not as people pleasers seeking to advance themselves in society, but offering their work to God as something pleasing to Him. And that masters, it says, do the same. Don't use your authority abusively over those who are subordinated to your care. This is a word to employers about how they treat those who they find under their care and who they provide for. And it becomes very important for us in our work to hear God's command that we offer our work to Him as a sacrifice. It's not common for us in the Western world to think of our work as something that engages God. We tend to work in order to actualize our lives, to give us those access to the benefits and the things that we want to do. And so work is a means to an end. In the Bible, work is something very different. Work is something that we engage, and through engaging, we serve God and serve others. That the vocations God calls us into, whether that be teacher or a lawyer or a doctor, whatever it may be, that we use that vocation to serve others around us, and in serving others, we are serving God and the common good. It's a phenomenal vision of how our work is oriented to the glory of God. And that God commands us to engage that work in that way. That we be oriented to, to Him in all that we do. Several years ago, when I worked at Second Presbyterian Church, I was in charge of the Christian Life Conference. And it was a great privilege, overwhelming at that point in my career, but I scheduled uh, the speakers for the conference, and we always had two, and then I would chauffeur them around uh, during the weekends. I can tell you some interesting stories from those chauffeuring experiences. The thing it gave me the opportunity to do was have conversations with some fairly high-power theologians and just get to quiz them. Uh, I also um, oftentimes got to turn that into privileges for the group that I ministered to. We had one theologian. His name is Jerem Bars. He may be unknown to you. He's a professor at Covenant Seminary. Jerem was a disciple of Francis Schaeffer, and he was in town to talk about this Christian vocation of work. And so on Sunday evening, after everything with the conference was done, he sat down with us, a group of about 20 in a living room, to discuss the real implications of what had been said. And of everything that was said that evening, I remember one thing about the conversation. He told a story. He told a story about his father-in-law, who was an orange grove owner in Southern California. He raised oranges for a living. Very humble, simple man, had done this for years. Jerem was out visiting his father-in-law, walking through the orange grove by himself. He said he rounded a corner and he saw something strange going on and he noticed that it was his father-in-law. The harvest um, from the orange trees was just about to become ripe. The first oranges were actually start, were ready to pull. And his father-in-law was pulling the first oranges from the tree. And then he was raising these oranges above his head and saying a very loud prayer of thanksgiving to God. Jeremy describes it as one of the strangest things he'd ever seen. He asked his father-in-law what exactly was going on later on. There was a practice in Old Testament Israel 
called the harvest of the first fruits. And the first fruits, the first part of the crop was brought to God. And it was giving thanks to God for what had been given. And so the first part of the crop was offered to God to sanctify the rest of everything that was offered. And this very simple farmer said, you know, it's been my way of putting that into practice. To recognize that the harvest of all of this grove belongs to God. He gives and he takes away, and this is not guaranteed. For those who are involved in in the agricultural world, you know the dependence and frailty of human beings. He understood that. That his livelihood could quickly be taken away by blight and insects and all kinds of manner of things. And so, in his very own simple way, he was offering his oranges to God giving thanks that God had given, that God had provided for him, and he was also offering himself in return to God. And friends, that's the vision of a Christian vocation, is that we render our service, whatever work it is that God has given us to do in the world, whether it's in the workplace or in the home, we could go through the exhaustive list, but that we take that work and we offer it to God, the works of our hands, And we render it to Him as an offering that's pleasing to Him. What we do and how we do it, that is what is so important to the Christian. And this frees us from the slavery of vocations where we simply work in order to get ahead. Or we simply work in order to actualize our dreams. But rather, our work becomes a source of Christian mission where we give ourselves to God and to our work there. And friends, in doing so, we seek the benefit of everyone around us. And obviously, if you find yourself in the position of being the employer, there are specific things that are addressed here. Do the same to them and stop your threatening. And so employers have responsibilities to those in their care that they can't simply be out about gaining the most profit for themselves. Employers are to watch after the benefit and the welfare of those who work with them and for them. We are to honor and not abuse. And this is where the Christian gospel steps into all of life and leaves nothing neutral. It addresses everything. Several years ago, I loaded onto an airplane. I had the unfortunate privilege of the middle seat and um, was awkwardly clamoring into the seat, sat down, and the normal small talk ensued. It's an elderly gentleman, so he was asking me where I was from, and we played the game. We finally got to the portion of the conversation where he asked me where I was educated and what I did. This is where it always gets awkward. And I told him I went to Furman University and that I had a bachelor's degree in political science, and that then I went on to work in college ministry, went to seminary, studied about the resurrection from the dead, and now was a Presbyterian pastor. He said, well, I don't talk about religion or politics, and just that quickly, we were done. Back, <laughs> back to our books and back to silence. It was, it was, it was blessed. Um, but why is that? You've heard it before. We don't talk about religion or politics. And we want to keep those two worlds apart, and sometimes we don't want to discuss either one of them. This is the unfortunate and difficult thing about being a Christian is you never can. That they are not the same thing. You don't conflate them, but you also can't pull them apart and keep them separated from one another as if they have no overlap and spheres of of overlapping influence. 
Because when we talk about economic and social relationships, you are in the world of politics. That's the world that politics serves. It serves the social and the economic sphere. It serves the well-being of all the systems that it involves for a society to flourish. And so we can't get away from it. And as Christians, we have to engage that world as thoughtfully and carefully as we can when we're talking about these social and economic relationships, and doing so with great care. Oftentimes, people will ask me my opinion on a political issue. And sometimes I'll share my personal opinion, where I feel convicted and what I think is right in that political moment to do. And sometimes I won't. I'll refuse to do so. Because what I'm mostly interested in for you is the method that you use to arrive at your opinion. Is the method that you use to arrive at the position that you take on important social and economic things like the ones addressed here. That's what's important. It is important for Christians to think as Christians. To be ruthlessly biblical. To think through all the different standards that impinge upon us as we consider policies in the political realm. To give an example, several years ago I was leading a Bible study. It was four young guys who'd all studied economic theory. I've decided to swear that off. In the conversation, we were discussing how Christianity and the gospel leaves nothing neutral. A very similar conversation to what we're having here. And as the conversation wore on, I was baited into a debate. I knew the bait was, about, was being set, and I took it foolishly asked me and said, Chuck, what do you believe about minimum wage? And I said, well, you know, to the best of my understanding, minimum wage arose because there were masters who were being abusive, taking advantage of people. And so in our broken capitalistic system that often works well, there were abuses. And so some had to step in to curb those abuses. And he said, so should a minimum wage be set? And I said, well, it seems like at certain times and in certain periods, it is prudent until you have masters who are extremely interested in the welfare and benefit of those under their care. And, um, and so he, he got me to say what he wanted me to say. And then he went on to critique what I had said. And uh, he had some exalted uh, economic theories that I can't even explain to you. I don't understand them. And I was just simply turning back to this. And I just said to him, Adam, I want you to think like a Christian. I'm not interested in all the economic theories. Yes, I haven't studied that. I don't know it. But what I do know is that employers are to care about employees. That employees are to care about their work and not their rights. And that, yes, the whole way the discussion takes place in our society is empty-headed and unfortunate. It's sad. Where employees want all rights and privileges and to reduce the amount of work and not care about the quality of work oftentimes. And employers want to get as much profit as they can and not seem to be cared for those who are under them and subordinated to them. And that's sad. The gospel gives us a different way forward as Christians. And what is so important for us 
is to think as Christians, not just assuming our cultural values that were ingrained from very early on, but being willing to have those challenged, like the Presbyterian pastor, John Gerardo, who I mentioned earlier, allowing his cultural world to be challenged and reshaped by the gospel. Friends, we want to allow that to happen in every area of life, for the gospel to be worked through us in that way. And that takes you to the question of how. How does that exactly happen? Paul gets to this in verse 8. He gives the motivation and reason for why we work in this way. He says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. If you flip over to the book of Colossians, you find Paul, who wrote these two letters at the same time from the same prison cell, referencing similar things. Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. And he spells out clearly the reward that is promised, that we work and we submit ourselves to others and we care for others and we seek to serve the common good. Why? Because there is a reward. And that reward spelled out in Colossians 3 is the inheritance that is to come. And friends, this is the unique thing about being a Christian, is that we have a decisively future-oriented horizon, that we don't live for everything in the here and now. We're not waiting for a cloud with a harp, of course, eternal choirs that sing long praise songs. That's not the vision either. The vision is of a reconciled heaven and earth where these two spheres of God's created reality are back together again and sin has been removed and our bodies are raised from the dead and there is no more corruption, decay. There are no more tears. There's nothing more to grieve. There's no more violence and hatred and the weapons of warfare are bent into productive things like plowshares, as Isaiah says. That's what we look to. When everything is right and every manner of things is right, that's the Christian vision. And what we have to do, what is incumbent upon us today, is to look to that. That is what motivates us. That is what allows us to endure in the middle of the partial nature of things right now and the difficulties, the fallenness, the brokenness, the injustice that happens. And it's anticipation, in, in anticipation of all of that, knowing God's great big story for everything, that we can then find meaning inside of oftentimes our most frustrating circumstances. That's what Paul's saying here. We don't live to have everything in the present tense. The Christian has a future tense. And that future tense is guaranteed because Jesus died he went down into death, and then he rose. And when he comes out of death, he's the guarantee of God's new world. Friends, that's assurance. A physical body out of the dead. And that's the guarantee of the world to come. And that God will reward. That doesn't mean merit and he's going to pay you a penny for a penny. 
but God will bring you into his glorious inheritance because of what Jesus has done for you. That's what God has for you. And so we go into work in that way. We go into all of life in that way. Let's pray and ask him for his help. Father, these are difficult words, and we need your help to know how to appropriate them for today. Guide us. Help us in all of our social and economic relationships that we know how to conduct these, and conduct these in a manner pleasing to you. Forgive us for our many sins that result because of this, and may we be free people who would gladly submit themselves to you because our Lord Jesus has done everything for us. We pray in his name. Amen.